when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Hey guys, Sari Delamont here. This is a recent Facebook Live that we've uploaded as a podcast. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Good to see you on this Wednesday morning. I'm so glad to be here with you. My schedule has finally let up just a bit. And so I get some chance to breathe and live and uh, do wonderful things, both for you guys and for myself personally. Uh, the book is on pre-order. If you've not heard that yet, we are so excited. So go to trialguides.com. And uh, if Christy's here, which she should be here in just a minute, she'll be able to post the link to the actual book page in uh, the links here. So you can go and pre-order the book from Hostage to Hero. We're very excited. We're gonna be planning a book launch party in January just because fall is so busy with preparing for the membership. Those of you who are local, love you to come. Those of you who wanna come in, we'd love you to come. So make sure that you stay uh, in touch with us about the book launch party. But for now, you can go and you can pre-order the book at trialguides.com. All right, there goes my Google password things. Let me shut that down. All right, so we are preparing for the membership that's gonna go with the book. As you might imagine, it is not, um, what would the word I would say, complete to just write about the work that I do, the nonverbal communication work, the group dynamics work. So we are preparing an entire course that will give you examples that go with the book so that you can continue your journey as the nonverbal communication masters that you are by joining the membership. Now, here's what you need to know. The membership is only going to be open two maybe four times a year. Hi everyone joining us, thanks for being here. And it's all, once it's closed, you can't get in for another three, four, six months. So in January it will open, stay again in contact. We're gonna have a wait list, sign up soon for that. Uh, if you're on our mailing list, you'll hear about it in any case. So we're very excited about that. We also are gonna have new studio dates for you. We are full up in uh, 2019, everything's been sold out. Although I potentially have one seat available in opening statement in November. If you're interested, let me know. It says sold out, it is sold out, but we have one person that would like to switch their date. So if someone's just dying to get into a studio this year, let me know, because that's your chance potentially in November to come out and see us. Um, and finally, last announcement before we get started on today's topic, I have, I believe, only one available opening for trial consulting the entire rest of 2019, and it's only a three-day spot. So if you need some trial consulting, do not delay and let us know that slot is open in December. Um, 2020 is already filling up, so don't wait to the last minute if you need some trial consulting help. All right, so let's talk about what we're here to talk about today, which is how to handle non-economic damages in trial. And so Jim, who I believe is with us, hi Jim, kind of started this whole thing in that he read my blog on price versus value. I also had a podcast on this particular topic. 
and said, can you give me an actual example? Um, and what he meant was, particularly when I said, when you, I, you should walk the jurors through your process. So I told Jim he may not like my answer today, but he's here to hear it anyway. His response to that was, well, in the jobs we do, we don't like a lot of the things that we hear. So I hate to add to that, but we'll see. You might like my answer. But um, on this topic, and I'm not just even on this topic, I love that Jim reached out to me, and I want you all to feel that that's what this space is for. When you read a podcast, or read a podcast, when you read a blog, or you listen to a podcast, and you have a question about it, don't let that stop you and go, oh, I'm just wondering about that. I'm here in this group for free to answer your questions. So email me, email Christy, get up on the Facebook page and say, I have a question about this. I'm happy to jump on a Facebook Live or do a full podcast on it. And a lot of these get turned into podcasts. Uh, and to further explain what I mean by some of the things, because again, we're only seeing a slice of time on a, a blog or a podcast. So that's what we're here to do today is to talk about that. So here's the problem, as you all know, that when you are discussing non-economic damages, jurors, along with you, want some sort of formula. They want to know, or at least you want to provide them with a reason or a formula or a structure for why you came up with the number that you came up with. And here's the funny thing, is that almost in every case that I help work up, when I ask, what are you asking? And they tell me the number, or they, in many cases, the attorney's like, I'm not really sure yet. When I ask them what they're gonna ask for, and then they tell me, and I say, and how did you come up with that number? <laughs> no one has a correct answer. No one, I, I wouldn't say correct answer. No one knows how to answer that, let me put it, put it that way. They say, I don't know, I just kind of pulled it out of my ass, or you know, it was the right number that felt right. And yet, and yet, Y'all want some formula or structure to go, here's the methodical way that I figured it out. And, and, and this is what I you know, want to share with you, the, my thought process on this number. And what I want to suggest to you is it's bullshit. All right? It's bullshit because you don't know how you came up with the number. And so you cannot then suddenly come up with this formula and tell jurors that this is how and why you came up with the number when it's not true. All right, so that's all I want you to think about there for a moment, is that we cannot manufacture something that actually isn't the case. So I want you to hold on to that for a moment. You go, sorry, well, then what do we do? I'm gonna tell you, just a minute, hold on. So let's talk about this in a little bit more depth. If you haven't read the blog or listened to the podcast on how to talk about economic damage or non-economic damages at trial or price versus value or whatever the hell I called it, um, you can go back to the, the podcast and listen to that or look through the Monday blogs. They're also on our website. If you receive our newsletter, um, you'll have that in one of your past newsletters. Here's the, the basic gist of price versus value, and this was developed by Paul Uvera and John Coletti when John and I were working on a case of his that went to trial here in Portland. And he went up and spent a weekend with uh, Paul Uvera as he and I were working up the case and he came back with this idea and we just used it throughout trial and now I use it in so many of my cases. Here's the basic gist. The gist is that jurors want a formula for damages and they want to be able to use their calculator. So it's your job it's your job to tell them when that's appropriate. So you need to say, 
There are two types of damages, or three if we're talking about punitives, but let's just talk about two right now with the non-economics and the economics. There are two types of damages that you as a juror are going to have to decide in this case. Let me talk about where you do this later. So if I don't do that, remind me of, of where in trial this happens, but let me just skip the, the content down. The first is economic damages. This is really what we're talking about. We're talking about price. What's the cost of getting somebody back on their feet? What's the cost of lost wages? What's the cost of um, medical treatment? That's the price of something. You're also going to have to determine the value of something. And that's a very different thing. Now, if you are planning on saying this in, let's say, closing, what you need to do, which is where I think you should say this, primarily this is where you're handling this is in closing, what you need to do is start this early. You need to start this back in voir dire, voir dire, jury selection, whatever you want to call it, so that this concept is something that jurors can rally around before you actually go and start pulling it through trial. And you know, if you've been with me for a while, that that's my thing in general, is that all good things start in Wadir. And in fact, if you don't have Wadir in your jurisdiction, I just don't know how <laughs> you function as a trial attorney because Wadir is so important. And I know we don't get much of it in federal trials and whatnot, but when you have it, it's wonderful. And here's why is because if you can get the jurors to rally around the ideas and the themes in your case in Wadir, and I, you know, I always hesitate when I say that because I think so many of you then go, oh great, then I'm gonna be lecturing about my trial themes in Wadir, no, nope, nope. Wadir is still all about the jurors and asking questions and listening. It's just that I have a very specific way of helping you do that so that they will rally around those themes and, and things in your case. But when you are doing that, you start in voir dire, and so you might ask the jurors, uh, what's the difference between the cost of something or the price of something and the value of something? And every time I've done this in my cases, you know, I obviously am not doing it, the attorney that I'm working with, it's a beautiful conversation. You know, just in this last voir dire studio in September, we had someone say, well, I've got this mixing bowl that I inherited from my grandmother. I use it every time I bake. And it just reminds me of her and the things we bake together and so on and so forth. But it didn't cost very much. I mean, it cost me nothing. I inherited it. But man, the value is big. So you get them talking about cost versus value. Now, what I want you to really be careful about is so many of you, you will throw out the word priceless. And I want you to be careful with that word priceless because I'm not saying you should never use it, but when you do use it, jurors hear there is no cost. And that's not necessarily what we're saying. We're saying that there are two buckets. Now, here's what I think I, I really wanna get across in terms of this, how do we talk about non-economic damages in trial? What formula do we use? That is secondary, my friends. I mean, the whole point of price versus value is that there is no formula for non-economic damages. The whole idea of price versus value is that one, you can use your calculator and the other one, you cannot, okay? And here's what's gonna win the day. I think this is the part that I really wanted to get across to you 
is that when you own your number and you communicate that to jurors, that's what wins them over. Am I saying that you can't give examples of, of how to break that number down? Yes, you can. And, and many of you already know what all those examples are. You know, there's the Craigslist ad when such and, you know, so-and-so has this many days to live and then that's this many hours a day and figuring that at $10 an hour, you come up with, you know, X million dollars. Um, Mitnick has his per diem argument, which is very similar to the Craigslist argument, but he does, he doesn't make it as long and he kind of makes it more general. And, and, and in fact, in, um, I say Mitnick, those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, the Don't Eat the Bruises book, um, has a lot of examples on how to break this down. I'm sure um, Damages has a lot of examples. Here's what's different about what I'm saying, though. I'm saying a couple things. One, I'm saying that you don't stand in front of jurors and go, this is how we came up with the number, because you know that's fucking not true. You did not sit there and go, I mean, maybe you did. And if you did, then hell, use it for sure. You know, when I first got this case and I looked at life expecting, I sat down and I thought to myself, if that's true, then use it. But if it's not true, then don't. You need to say something different, like here's the number we're asking, and I'm gonna tell you how to do that in just a minute. And if that helps, and that's the number that feels right to me. You know, after I came up with that number, I thought about it. And it's kind of like, if I, I took his life and the life expectancy, now you can use the Craigslist or per diem argument or whatever you end up doing as a way for jurors to think about that number versus how you came up with the number. And I, I think that distinction is really huge because you know if you've worked with me before, you're listening to a podcast, that what you think you will communicate and you cannot fool jurors, at least not, not those of you who are my clients that are authentic and real and in this to show up as your real self. You cannot, you cannot trick them. So you need to be honest about it. You need to be honest. Now, here's what, here, I'm going to give you an example, and you may have heard this in the podcast or heard me say this on a different Facebook Live about the Texas case that I just worked back in autumn, September. So it was last month. Feels like a lifetime ago, but I was out there for a week and it was an overserved case, a dram shop case. And what was so fascinating about this case is they, you know, we had a, a drunk driver leaves the bar and mows over three cyclists, two die, and one has a, um, a, some major physical issues, uh, as long as, as well as a brain injury. And so they were asking for a hundred million dollars. Now, that's a lot of money. <laughs> I think our jury, we had three juries. In fact, if you come out and work with me or you bring me to work out with work with you for a five day stint, you get three juries as a part of that. And so in every single jury, when the attorney said, we're asking for a hundred million dollars, every single jury, they were shocked. I mean, they about fell out of their chair. We're talking about conservative Texas where like the word liberal is a bad word. Trial attorneys are bad people. I mean, they just fell out of their chairs as you would have expected, $100 million. At the end of opening, every single uh, jury that we had, because we did the opening with those, all those times, well, we didn't do it the first one, um, but at the end of the voir of the first jury and then at the end of the opening of the next two, so all three juries said and asked, can we give more? And I would like to also 
point out that nowhere in any of the, the openings or the voir dires of those three types, three times we had the juries, did we ever give them a calculation of how we came up with the number? Not once. Now, a couple of reasons why that worked and what I'm hoping you take away from today is that when you own the number, that makes all the difference in the world. I mean, the week we worked up this case, we said the word 100 million as many times as we could say it. We would say it when we saw each other in the morning, you look 100 million bucks today. <laughs> we said it, um, oh my God, it's 100 million degrees outside today. I mean, we said that word until it was so freaking normal. In fact, people ask me a lot, should I say the number in Wadir? If you can in your jurisdiction, yes. If for no other reason, so that you are practiced in saying it and that you make it so normal for jurors to hear, especially if you have a huge number, that it becomes normal for jurors to hear that number. I think that's absolutely essential. Am I going to say that you're going to lose trial if you don't say it in Wadir? No. There's a lot of great trial attorneys that don't think you should at all. But from my experience, when someone really owns the number, they can't wait to say it and get it ringing in the ears of jurors. Now, a couple things. When they said that number, when they said $100 million, it was actually beneficial for them not to give a calculation. Because here's what happened. When the juror heard the number $100 million, their brain just went into like freak out mode, like, oh my God. And they started to try to figure out why they would be asking for such a big number on their own. And between the jurors talking, they're like, well, you know, there are three people and you said there were six kids, right? And they started to do that. They started to come up with their own calculation. Now, the only reason that works is because we left it till the end after the or attorney had done all of his work in building credibility and connection and getting all the jurors on the same page. By the time he had a lot of credibility and connection with them, they respected him enough to go, he must have a reason why he's asking this number. So their brain went to go figure it out. Now, when he was actually in opening, this is what he said, and I think this is huge, and it was so authentic, and that's why it worked. So this is not a technique I'm about to teach you. This is an example of someone who owned their number. He said, in this case, we are asking for $100 million because, frankly, I don't have the courage to ask you for what it's really worth. And in that moment, the jurors were like, can we give more? Because he had built so much credibility. They didn't fucking need a formula to buy into the fact that this man was asking for the right number because they believed in the man, not the calculation. And that is what, by the way, all my work is about. You guys are looking for formulas, tricks, techniques, and I get it. I'm not saying, I'm not judging you for that. The work you do is extremely difficult. The work you do is hard. There's so much on the line, your own money, your time, the future of your plaintiff. But formulas are not what is going to save you. It's owning your number. It's standing in front of the jury. It's building the credibility. You know, and back in Wadir, when he said, you know, when we, he said $100 million, 
they were super shocked. And first of all, that's okay with us. That's another thing I teach you in my Bois classes is that you just accept that as absolutely, that's a lot of money. Who here thinks that's a lot of money? Everyone raised their hand. They're like, whoa. And, and he, then our, our attorneys always ask, what would you like to know? Now, almost every juror will say to that question, how did you come up with that number? And so in your attorney brain, you're going to want to go, oh, here's where I tell the formula. Nope. You can't have a formula in closing. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. You, this is what we teach our attorneys to say. We have gone on a journey with these people. And over that journey, that time that we've been traveling with them, as we prepared to bring this to trial, we came up with that number. And we're going to show you over trial why we think that number is justified. Notice how I didn't say how we came up with the number, but why we think that number is justified. But here's what you need to understand as jurors. Should you decide to be a juror on this case, you're going to go on a journey with these people. And you're going to have to decide what the right number is. And you may decide that number is less than $100 million. And you may decide that number is more than $100 million. But regardless, you can't make that determination until you go on a journey just like we've had to go on that journey. And then, of course, you want to ask them, do you want to go on this journey, which is what we do at the end of what year. What I'm trying to communicate is that whatever number you come up with, when you fully own that number and communicate it to jurors and aren't afraid to say it out loud, and you have emotion behind your choice, like the attorney in Texas did, if you've done your job in voir dire and you've created connection and you have communicated credibility, they don't need a formula. They believe you because you're believable. They believe you because you've taken the time to listen to them. They are looking for someone to guide them. And when you show up as leader and you say the number, they believe the number because you have made believers out of them. That's all nonverbal. That's all internal work. That's what I'm trying to communicate. Now, in closing, you can give examples. You can say, now, <clears throat> We're asking for $100 million. And here's what I want you to consider, jury. When you think about it, there's three families here represented. And those kids are going to have to, to live without a father and go through the moments. I and mean, you can walk them through that. And in John Coletti's case, where he came up with the price versus value, he talked about the idea of <clears throat> this man. You've all heard me talk about this case, I'm sure, uh, here in Portland where the garbage truck took the illegal right turn and ripped the leg from his body in, in the intersection. And so he said, you know, when I was thinking about the, the number and why I'm asking for this number, I was thinking about how many people would stand at the street corner and for $5 million know that they, he was asking for more than five. He's just asking about this one piece in terms of pain. Would know that a, a, a garbage truck is going to come around the corner and rip their leg off. And here's the kicker. When they get to the other side, I'm going to give them their leg back. They get their leg back. But for $5 million, they're going to have to go through the pain of having that leg ripped off. How many people do you think would be willing to do that for $5 million? So that's one thing I was considering when I was considering my number. Or I mean, that's an example 
of why I'm asking for the number. So instead of coming up with a formula, here's how we came up with it, you're giving examples of how to contextualize it. That's very different. But I, I think for me, the owning it at the beginning, the getting the jurors to, to think about the difference between price versus value is really the important piece here. Then you can give examples in closing, because by closing, it's done. They're either with you or they're not with you by the end of opening as, in far, as far as what I, what I teach. So in closing, now you're just giving them a little bit more ammunition to really think through the process. But that's the whole point of price versus value. The reason we're talking about the difference between price versus value is you can't use a formula or a calculator in the value part. It's the value of something. It's just like a Picasso. Who fucking decides that a Picasso is $3 million worth, $300 million worth? Right? It's just this thing that we've kind of thrown in there. And that's what's hard about this work here, too. It's kind of feeling like we're like, what's a life worth? 10 million, 20 million? The, the thing is, is that there's no like way to like look at the book of, you know, and go, well, here's what a life is worth. And depending on this and depending on that, you have to do that work for the jury and come up with the number. And then you own that number and then give examples of how to contextualize it. That's my answer. I'm sticking to it. Now, having said that, I'm consistently evolving on this issue. The more I work with you, the more ideas I get, and I'll continually add to my thoughts on this. But I'm telling you what I've seen and observed in my own work life, and that is when the attorney owns his number, her number, whatever number, it changes everything. In fact, the attorney in this Texas case came up to me, he's never asked for the number in Guadir. And so I said, well, let's do it this week because it's low low cost. These are all mock juries. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, you know what I thought I figured out this week? The only reason I haven't asked for the number, I've given all kinds of excuses why I haven't asked and all the things I've read, but the, you know what the real reason is? I realized is that I didn't, I never really owned my number. I was like, dude, that's it. And here we've seen three conservative Texas juries award, ask, can we give more? And we did not have a formula. All right, my peeps, um, what is, hello everyone, now I'm looking at here. Oh, Jim, you're welcome. Who has questions? Any questions? Jim's question, is this topic covered in your book? Yes, somewhat. I mean, I, I'm not a damages expert. Mitnick, um, David Ball, uh, all those guys, there's tons of books out there on damages. So yes, I cover it in a couple paragraphs, but I don't put a lot of energy and effort into this because now, as you've heard me talk about it, it's all about you. I'm all about you. In fact, that's what we really decided as we're moving forward in 2020 is that I love trial, yes, but I'm more in love with you guys and gals. I am so interested in helping you internally in terms of your mindset and externally in terms of your communication. You've got tons of people out there who have great ideas on content and what to say. My whole job is how to get it across. So yes, I'll cover it some in my book, but not as much as I cover the nonverbal intelligence pieces. That's in my book. But Jim, you've been asking about the book for months. You're going to get the book anyway, right? Of course, if you haven't already ordered it. Uh, other questions that you guys have? I hope this has been helpful. I hope this gives you the, you know, the shot in the arm that you need um, to really own the hell of that number. The formulas, the ways you come up with it, that's all secondary. If you want to use those in closing to kind of bring your point home, go for it. But it really is building that credibility and then throwing out that number and then standing behind it. I mean, literally standing behind it. I can't tell you how many times people have said in opening or even what ear, we are asking for 
$10 million. You know, they do this thing. They step backwards. Right there, you've just communicated. It's not worth that much. So it starts here, but then you have to really own the hell out of it. And we had a great attorney. I think he's on today. Uh, June is on. June Ho, who is like incredible attorney. And he said, as he was using my method when he was at the Voidier studio, price versus value, he used the word appraiser. And I loved that, is that jurors are going to have to act as appraisers. And I, I just thought that's a great way to help jurors kind of think of their role when it comes to damages. It's a lovely way to put it. Other questions? All right. Here's one. Daryl. Hi, Daryl. Uh, in the value bucket, is per diem argument not given calculus? Seems like the like own the number, then give them examples of how to justify. Yes, so the value bucket is not the per diem argument, and it's not the calculator argument. It's the owning the number, absolutely. And then you can give them examples, you're exactly right, Daryl, of ways to think about it, not ways of, or reasons why you came up with the number. You can say, this is the number that, that we, we feel is right after going through this process, this journey with these people. So that's the, that telling them how you came with a number. We went through a process and a journey. But you can use, here's some examples. If you want to break this down, here's some ways you can think about it. Do you see how that's different than here's how we came up with the number? Hopefully that answered your question, Daryl. If not, retype. Uh, Jim, I loved your answer. Yay, not disappointed at all. So I think I haven't owned my numbers in the past. Ooh, yes, I look like a million bucks. Well, thank you. I think you wanted to say I look like a hundred million bucks, right? That's what you wanted to say. Steve, uh, you mentioned credibility a lot. What are some ideas on building it? Well, here we go, Steve. You've been out to the classes. Not recently, might I remind you. I miss your face. Um, but how do you build credibility? Well, first of all, is you become the best version of yourself and you get rid of all the gimmicks and the formulas and all that bullshit. And you stop today as of this Facebook Live and say, I'm done with that shit. Yes, I'm going to learn things. I'm going to read things. But I'm no longer going to try to be like insert famous trial attorney here or, you know, do this method that... Nick Rowley suggested or whatever. I mean, there's fine. You can do the Nick Rowley method, but what you have to understand, it's got to be you. You've got to own that. It's got to be authentic to you. That is the number one credibility builder. You know, I had an attorney come out to one of our studio classes. You may have heard me talk about this. And he was so nervous that as he stood there with his notes, and we normally don't allow, I mean, I won't say allow, but I would suggest don't use notes. But he was so nervous, I was going to let him do whatever he could do. He was shaking like this through the whole opening statement. And finally, he put it down, and then he started to tell the story, and boy, did he ever come alive. And at the end of the, um, of the opening, I asked the jurors, how many of you noticed that this guy was nervous? And they all raised their hand. And I said, and how did that affect your view of his credibility? And they said, it increased it. And I said, it increased it? Why? And they said, because it meant he was real. It meant that this meant something to him. You guys are trying to bend yourselves into these perfection pretzels when that's the opposite of what you need to do. I don't mean you want to go out there and, and be sloppy and, and not be prepared. But what I'm saying is your realness is what builds credibility. And then, of course, as you know, Steve, the nonverbal communication also is going to help you when you're congruent, when your palms turn down, when you're sending information, when your voice curls down when you're communicating information. When you own that number and you say, we're asking for $100 million. Notice the voice curls down, the palms are down versus we're asking for $100 million, right? Nobody really does it that way, but sometimes you will be slightly approachable, which there's a place for approachability. We're asking for $100 million. 
And it's like, are you? Do you really believe that? So it's first deciding you are enough. And second, it's communicating congruently. Those are the two big credibility builders. Christian, that was great. And first time I ever watched something live on Facebook. Yay, thank you for being here. Michael, I'm trying to help my newer lawyers who are recent converts from the defense bar own their number. It's a struggle. Any suggestions? Well, I always suggest that the minute you can't own it, it's too high. So if they can't own a million bucks, then it's got to be 900,000. If they can't own 900,000, it's got to be 800,000. And soon they're going to get really tired of that shit and want to start owning their bigger numbers. So a couple of things are, you know, check in with their comfort level first. But to increase their comfort level, say it out loud. Talk about it. Say it to other people. Meditate on it. Think on it. Breathe on it. Put it around your house. I mean, do all the weird woo-woo shit. I'm telling you, every good thing that's ever happened in my life is because I thought I created in my mind first. Stephen Covey in Seven Habits talks about how there's two creations, the one in the mind and then the one that actually happens. So it's, it's a mindset piece. Michael, as you know, is one of my coaching clients. It's all about how you think about it. Hire a coach. Hire a coach. Um, that's another one. That's another one. So it, it really is a mindset thing. June. Can you show us an example of what it would look like when asking for the number and owning it? <laughs> Michael, their numbers are low. Exactly. So they've got to keep increasing that number. June. Okay, so here it is. So if we're, you know what? I don't know. Can I change the camera on this, Kevin, to do that cool camera angle? I don't think I can do it on Facebook. Kevin sent a, um, an overhead camera that I used in my class the other day. I don't think I can do it here. But okay, so you can't see my legs, but they are... I weight over both feet and toes were pointed forward. And so I'm gonna have the palms facing down and I'm gonna say, in this case, we are asking for a hundred million dollars. Now notice that's very different than, in this case, we're gonna be asking you for a hundred million dollars. Now this looks very friendly, but that is not what you're doing. You're saying, this is worth a hundred million dollars. Or in opening, I say, now we're asking for a hundred million dollars because frankly, I don't have the courage to ask you for what it's really worth. And he got a little teary there and it was all authentic. And ugh, oh man, that just sent the jury over the edge. They're like, what, how much do you want? This is not a gimmick, people. That's what I want you to recognize. This has to be real. It has to be real. So yeah, write that number, put it in your journal, put it on your laptop. First, figure out what it is. If you don't know what it is, if you're like, I have no idea what the hell to ask, what would be like a great thing to ask? Live with it for a while. If you can't own that, then go down. If something seems super easy to own, you need to ask for more. You should be right on the edge. As, as Kevin, fellow coach, my husband says, what's your stretch? It should be like on the edge of uncomfortable. If it's like super comfortable to ask, this case worth $5 million, you're not asking enough. You're just not. So it should be right on the edge. It should be a stretch for you. That's your sweet spot. That, by the way, is how you become an eight-figure verdict person. By the way, hopefully in the fall, we're going to be creating what, in my world, is going to be my inner circle. The eight-figure eight verdict club is what I'm thinking of calling it. People who are looking to get into that club and um, or had already been there and want to continue, Keep in touch with me because I'm thinking of taking a, a really small group of attorneys and, and growing them as a mastermind over a year. So that's going to be something new next fall. Keep in contact. That'll, we'll be growing that over the next year. 
All right. Loved seeing all of you here today. I hope this was helpful. Um, get the book. If you haven't already gotten the book, uh, you can go to trialguides.com and grab that book. I don't see that Kirsty posted it, but maybe she did. I don't know. She may have come on a little late. But anyways, if you go to Trial Guides, I think it's the first thing on there, which is kind of cool. Um, be in um, communication with us on the uh, membership that's going to be opening in January. And until we meet again and see you again, um, thank you for being here. You guys allow me to do my life's work, and uh, that's not a small thing for me. All right. Talk to you guys soon. Thanks. That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. But head to our website, sorrydlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sorry Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sorry's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today, and until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself.